In place of People of Note this week, we present the fourth in the Fine Minds series of lectures, a collaboration between Fine Music Radio and the University of Cape Town's Centre for Extramural Studies, which will already be known to many of our listeners for its annual summer school programme. Mehdi Rahl introduces today's topic. Born in England in 1951, Cathy Suchwell grew up in the Eastern Cape, where she studied African languages and anthropology at Rhodes University. She obtained her LLB and then practiced law as an attorney in Johannesburg for 18 years before being appointed a judge of the High Court of South Africa in 1996. She is the author of many reported judgments in commercial, family, criminal and administrative law. She was appointed chairperson of the Road Accident Fund Commission by President Nelson Mandela in 1999. Cathy has been a visiting scholar at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies at the University of Oxford and a visiting fellow at Wolfson College, Oxford. Active in the struggle for human rights in South Africa, she was herself involved in a number of political and community organisations and provided legal representation for political activists, detainees and persons accused in political trials. She appeared before censorship tribunals and represented conscientious objectors. She is a former chairperson of the Human Rights Commission Trust, is the managing trustee of the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund, and was, was awarded an LLD honoris causa by Rhodes University for her contribution to the struggle for human rights. Cathy has edited the letters and diaries of soldiers who served, survived, or died in the First World War. She has researched the lives and deaths of men and women commemorated on a number of great war memorials. These projects have involved dusty hours in military national archives and museums in South Africa and the United Kingdom. On her many trips to the Western Front, Cathy has walked the countryside looking for the pathways and routes marched, trenches and dugouts, medical aid posts and headquarters, debris of the battlefield as also burial sites. She has compared archival material, particularly official maps and war diaries, and also personal letters, diaries, and drawings, with the topography of these battlefields today. She visits her boys where they have known graves and pays special attention to the graves of those who remain unknown save unto God. In 2007, the Last Post Association invited her to recite the invocation at the Last Post Ceremony at Menengate in Ypres. Cathy has made several presentations on the First World War and has twice been awarded the prize for the best annual lecture by the South African Military History Society in Gauteng. 100 years ago, in 1916, men and women of South Africa, both black and white and in uniform and out, were waiting with bated breath for the outcome of a great First World War battle in France. I'm talking about the campaign for Delville Wood in France in July 1916, where South Africans prepared for battle, fought, were wounded, died, they nursed, and then buried the dead. This is not my story, and I hope to tell it through the words of those who were there. Boys and men such as Jacob Martley, Stamela Jingos, Alfred Mandy, Joe Patterson. Their stories tell, it, tell us what it was like to prepare for battle, to go into Delville Wood, fight there, lose a brother, suffer terrible injuries and seek medical help. Perhaps to begin with, I should answer three questions which are often asked. Firstly, what was the First World War all about and where did it take place? 
Secondly, why on earth was South Africa involved in this war? And thirdly, why did individual men and women from South Africa volunteer to serve in a war which was not being fought within the borders of South Africa and which does not really seem to have involved our country in any way? Well, first let's look at the war. As always, this war was about power and insecurity. The heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, based in Vienna, was assassinated in Sarajevo in 1914. And what happened thereafter was like a pack of cards. One by one, the great powers of Europe entered into the war. The assassination of the Archduke led Austria to declare war on Serbia. Germany supported Austria. The Russian Empire then mobilized its army in support of Serbia. France was an ally of Russia. And all this made Germany extremely anxious, because Germany was now surrounded by countries with which it was at war. Russia in the east and France in the west. So to protect itself, Germany decided to invade Belgium and France, and hopefully end that war before it had to turn its attention back to Russia. But it was this invasion of Belgium which caused Great Britain to enter the war on behalf of Belgium and therefore on France. And so we had a world war. But no conquest happened. There was a stalemate. The Belgian, French and British soldiers dug deeper and deeper holes in the ground to protect themselves from bullets and artillery as they faced the invading Germans. Eventually these holes were joined together into long trenches. And eventually these trenches became a line of defence stretching from the sea, the English Channel, all the way through Belgium, through France and ending at the borders of Switzerland. And the Germans simply couldn't get through this line of defended trenches and so they built their own trenches. And for four years from 1914 to 1918, soldiers lived in these trenches, sometimes held up by bags filled with sand, sometimes by planks of wood to make walls. Here the soldiers stood with rifles facing the enemy, slept on the ground, cooked their food in sand, mud, rain, with bullets and missiles from the great guns of the artillery firing over and into them. Sometimes one or both sides would climb out and attack each other, and then they would simply get back into the same or different trenches. The second question is why on earth was South Africa involved? Well. In 1910, the Union of South Africa was formed with the four provinces of Natal, the Cape, the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. But South Africa was not entirely an independent country. Although we had a parliament in Cape Town, we were part of the British Empire. We were what is known as a dominion. And the King of England appointed a Governor-General to approve all our laws. Once Great Britain was at war with Germany, so were all the dominion countries – Canada, Australia, Newfoundland, New Zealand, islands in the Caribbean, and of course South Africa. It was not us South Africa which declared war, Great Britain did it for us. South Africa was therefore automatically at war. Britain then asked us for help in controlling German colonies in Africa. And so the Union of South Africa invaded German Southwest Africa, now Namibia, and then German East Africa, now Tanzania. The third question, is why on earth would black and white South African men and women go and serve in this war? South Africa had no conscription. Everyone who went to war from South Africa was a volunteer. Well, as always, and particularly with young people, the reasons are many and complicated. Young people thought that war was going to be interesting. 
It would involve travel to faraway places. They would meet new people and have exciting new experiences. And it was often the sense of adventure that called people from lives which were felt to be dull. Boys and men often went as groups of brothers and cousins, school friends from the same class or school, workmates from offices and mines. And then, of course, we must remember that the minimum pay to South African soldiers of three shillings a day was far better than many could earn at home. And there were others with skills, for instance, such as telephone operators or who worked with the big guns of the artillery, they could earn at least seven and a half shillings a day. And finally, we must remember that English speakers in South Africa had been brought up to feel very British, to talk of England as home. They were brought up to feel loyal to King and to Empire. For black men, there were additional reasons. Both the ANC and other leaders hoped to persuade the British government to protect and support black South Africans against the discrimination and oppression of the Union government. It was as recently as 1913 that the Union government had passed the 1913 Land Act and removed control of land from black South Africa. So it's not surprising that black South Africans hoped that if they served the king and the empire in this war, they would receive a payback of support from the British. Unfortunately, they didn't. And then, of course, there were many women who had professional training as nurses. And a time of war was certainly the time and the place when they were most greatly needed. There were also unskilled women who wanted to serve, to help, and whose brothers and husbands and friends were serving, and they also went off to work in hospitals. But let us return to July 1916 and the great campaign of big and little battles which were taking place, and in particular the battle for Delville Wood. It was decided by the French and the British to try and achieve a breakthrough, to end the stalemate of everyone living in those trenches and to move out and beyond the trenches into open battle. The plan was to commence a great battle in July in the area north of the Somme River in northern France. For many months in 1916, the preparations for this great new campaign was underway. The soldiers of the South African native labor contingent was essential to these preparation for battle. Black South Africans cut down forests and the wood was used as sleepers for railway lines which were laid. These black soldiers quarried stone and built roads. Ships were unloaded with supplies of food, horses to transport everything from guns to generals, and enormous quantities and supplies of ammunition and artillery. And all these supplies had to be loaded onto trains and then taken up to the trenches. New trenches had to be built. Water pipes were laid over the ground, up to the trenches. Underground telephone lines were dug from headquarters to artillery bases and trenches. And of course, casualty stations and hospitals and even mass graves had to be built and staffed. Life for these black soldiers was not easy. Jacob Matle, who had been elected as a leader of one group of men, described what it was like in the camps in France. He said, Nearly every evening we were attacked by the enemy planes. This camp was twice in flames during enemy attacks. Stamela Jingos of Swazi descent, who had lived in Basutoland and worked in Johannesburg, talked about, There was a wail of the siren, British soldiers racing to their trenches. At that instant the sounds of plane was heard and five German aircraft came into view. The plane started dropping bombs on us. One fell close by, but it buried itself in the sand and no one was hurt. Our soldiers were shooting at the plane until they passed over us and disappeared. 
They reappeared shortly after, only three of them this time, diving low from the direction of the hospital, skimming over the top of the pine and gum trees. The soldiers warned us not to move until they had gone. Then one of the planes was hit and it crashed to the earth while its two companions flew on over the town of Dieppe. When we found the wreckage, there were three men in the plane. Two were dead, but the third was still breathing. The Basutu wanted to finish him off, but Captain Geddy stopped us and the fellow was taken to Dieppe Hospital. Once all the preparations for battle were ready, on the 1st of July 1916, the campaign started. On that first day, the casualties were unexpected and horrifying. When the sun went down on that first day, the 1st of July, there were 54,470 British and Empire casualties in total. 19,240 were killed. So on that one day alone, almost the entire population of Seapoint was killed. Almost the entire population of Atlantis was wounded. More than the entire population of Fishhook was killed. Nearly all of Guguletu was either killed or wounded. Over the entire battle, from July to November 1916, no less than 1.3 million British, German, French soldiers were killed, wounded, missing or taken prisoner. For the British alone, there were over 400,000 casualties, of whom 95,000 were killed. So the British lost in battle the entire population of Kaya every man, woman and child wounded or killed, the whole of Simonstown and Lunga, every man, woman and child wiped off the face of the earth or killed. This Battle of the Somme was unlike any that had ever been waged before. And the gain? The reason for this great campaign? Well, there were some meters forward in some places, some kilometers forward in others, no great breakthrough. The South African infantry went into this great battle on the 12th of July. First they had to clear the Germans out of two woods before the South African Brigade could try to advance through a deep valley of fields of wheat and potatoes known as Caterpillar Valley, and then up and onto a steep ridge on which the village of Longval and Delville Wood were placed. Two brothers, Alf and Les Mandy, were soldiers of the South African Brigade. They had grown up in a farm in the district of Bathurst near Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape. Their father had so many sons from two marriages that he was proudly able to field his own cricket team of sons. Both boys worked in the South African post office and so it made sense for the South African army that they were both placed as signalers into the South African brigade. Alf wrote home, I dare say by now you will have heard that we've had something to do and the big movement is taking place. I wish I could describe everything to you in detail, but I'm afraid even if Mr. Sensor would allow it, I could not give you the slightest idea of what this hell on earth is like. Thousands of big guns boom away for all they are worth day and night, and shells fall around one so thickly that one really wonders how it is possible to live in such an inferno. In parts, the ground is so full of holes that there is not a single portion of the original surface showing, while the villages we have taken have not a single house showing above the ground. Even some of the forests are absolutely blotted out of existence. So far, Les and I have escaped without a scratch, but our narrow escapes have been so numerous that we're not counting on them anymore. Les is a brick and treats everything with the indifference of a veteran, but I'm afraid I cannot boast too great a nerve myself after what we have gone through. Some days later, Alf wrote from hospital. When we arrived at Delville Wood, we were amazed to find that we were on the edge of no man's land, and one of our first jobs was to dig ourselves in. 
The wood appeared to be in a plantation attached to the village, and it was still so dense that we were able to reach open ground beyond in many places without apparent observation or casualties. Where we were deployed to the left, however, we were soon in trouble from both machine gun and artillery fire. As there were no trenches, we had to dig in under fire, and we suffered very heavy losses. As we were making our way forward in short, sharp rushes, my brother Leslie, who was at my side, was struck in the chest by a shell splinter. I dragged him into a shell hole and managed to fetch a couple of stretcher bearers to carry him back. But when we returned, he was dead. Although I had been hit twice and seen many men killed, my brother's death was a terrible shock, and I was in a daze throughout my stay in the wood. Now, as soldiers were wounded, they were treated in the middle of battle in what were called regimental aid posts. They were then moved on to casualty clearing stations where doctors and sometimes nurses gave help before the soldiers were sent back to hospitals behind the lines. Alf eventually was taken to hospital, and it was there he wrote to his parents. It is really heartbreaking to have to write of dear old Les's death. Poor chap, he was killed whilst repelling attack by the Huns, and although I went back immediately, he died before I could get him to the dressing station. A couple of days later, I got it again too. The Huns broke through and covered us, but even without officers, our fellows fought through to the last man. I'm afraid our regiment was entirely blotted out. I got a rotten wound through the lower jaw and through the tongue just before the Huns' final rush, and I managed to crawl and hide in a share hole in no man's land, and then crawled through to our lines after dark. When I got there, I had lost the power of speech. I was nearly shot by one of our own officers because I was unable to explain who I was. I'm down at the base hospital now, and although I'm still speechless and unable to eat or drink, fed with a rubber tube halfway down my throat, I hope to be well on the way to recovery by the time this reaches you. Alf was taken to hospital first in France and then to England, where he spent many months. The South Africans had a hospital of tents and wooden huts in a little town called Abville at the coast so that soldiers could be evacuated by ship to England for treatment. The South African nurses there included Edith Baker, whose two brothers were at Delville Wood, one being killed and the other treated at her hospital, Winifred Munro, whose brothers also fought and after whom the hospital chapel was named by the soldiers, Olive Hockey, Sonny Bernstein. They were all professional nurses trained in South African hospitals who had volunteered for military duty when war was declared in 1914. Some of them had served in German Southwest Africa, others on the hospital ship known as Ebani, where soldiers had been evacuated from German Southwest Africa, East Africa, and from the campaign in Turkey, the Dardanelles, to Egypt. Another description of the Battle of Delvillewood is given by Joe Patterson who had grown up with his younger brother Vic in the hamlet of Southwell, where their father was the rector at St. James Church and also the headmaster at Southwell School. The 1908 school photo shows Joe with a very serious face and a large white Eton collar, and Vic all scowling and dressed up in his best sailor suit. Joe went to work in Standard Bank, and Vic was hoping to farm. Both of them served in German Southwest Africa, Egypt, and then to France and this battle for Delville Wood. Joe wrote home to his parents after the battle. My dear parents, this is my first opportunity about telling you about dear old Vic's death. On the morning of that dreadful day, the 16th, I took him his rations and he couldn't have been in better spirits. Well, about midday we got the order that a bombing trench held by the enemy had to be taken, so we assembled and went over the top, I being with number four section on the left and Vic with number one section on the right. 
We found the trench so strongly held that we had to retreat. When back at the lines, I asked for Vic, and his chum told me that he and Vic, in charging with the rest, had got right up to the enemy trench, where they found things so hot that they got into a shell hole and started throwing their bombs into the trench ahead. His chum says he then looked round and found that he and Vic were about the last left, so he called, Come on, Vic, and got no answer. Victor had answered that greater call, Mother, and could speak to us no more. We made a great effort to get their bodies, but it was impossible. So Vic lies with the other lads on the German parapet. Don't fret about me. I've had wonderful escapes. I was once buried by a shell, but I'm quite unharmed. Into Delville Wood on the morning of Friday, the 14th of July, 3,153 men of the South African Brigade had gone. The brigade was instructed to hold the wood, quote, at all costs, unquote, and they certainly did. Out of the wood, less than one week later, on Thursday the 20th of July, were able to walk only two wounded officers and 140 men. The rest were casualties. Of those casualties, 750 men were killed, but only 200 of their bodies were ever found and identified. So from 3,000 men, only 160 returned from the wood at the end of the battle. So terrible were the number of shells fired from guns that the entire countryside was destroyed. Not a tree was standing, not a village was identifiable, just a mound of rubble. The ground was tossed and tumbled and ended up great big shell holes. No roads were left. It was a moonscape. Bodies were destroyed. After this great battle in 1916, the war continued to rage in this area for another two and a half years until the end of 1918. By then, little trace could be found of hundreds of thousands of soldiers like Vic and Les, who had been killed or who had simply lain there and died of their wounds in Delville Wood. But some part of the body of Les Mandy was found and identified. He is buried in the cemetery at Delville Wood. In that cemetery there are hundreds of white gravestones, a huge white cross known as the Cross of Sacrifice, flowers and rose bushes growing at each gravestone, all facing the enormous dark green forest which is Delville Wood once again. On Les's gravestone his parents had the words engraved, quote, he died for king and country, unquote. The body of 19-year-old Vic Patterson was never identified. But a few miles away from Delville Wood is a vast memorial where the village of Tiepfel once stood, but was destroyed during the war and never reconstructed. The Tiepfel Memorial to the Missing, which is made up of arches of red brick, has room for the names of 72,000 from the United Kingdom of South Africa who are, quote, the missing, unquote. They are missing in the sense that their bodies were never found or identified. This memorial is only one of the many memorials for these five months of the Battle for the Somme. The name of Vic Patterson is described on this great memorial, which can be seen from miles away across the hills. Three months later, Joe Patterson went into the next battle with the South African Brigade at a place called Wallencourt. Just before battle, he wrote a comforting letter home to his parents. I'm sure you must have all felt the terrible news more than we did, as we'd all prepared ourselves for death, and as I think no one could have died a finer death than our lads did. And mother mine, it's not this life we have to think of, it's the one to come. I'm certain when we've all crossed the short span that separates us from the life to come, we will find old Vic there ready to give us a hand in. So sometimes when things seem heavy to you both, just remember that Vic went to communion with me 
just before we went into action, and he wasn't afraid to die. Lifespan is not long that separates us from those who have passed, and therefore let us all keep up heart and hope for the day when peace is declared and I come home to you all. Alas, Joe was not to come home to his parents. He was badly injured, spent three days lying in the mud, was eventually taken to hospital where both legs and a hand and an eye were amputated. 22-year-old Joe died. He was buried at the cemetery in Rouen where he'd been taken to hospital. He has a grave and gravestone, and on his stone his parents had added the words. Also, his brother Vic fell at Delville Wood, age 19. The nurses also line the cemeteries with their patients. Edith Baker is buried in Abville in the same cemetery as many of her patients. Her parents had written on her stone, Sleep, dear one, amongst the boys you love. Olive Hockey is a few miles up the coast at Vimero in a soldier's cemetery. Winifred Munro was sent to Scotland to die in Glasgow. Connie Addison and Elizabeth Edgar have no grave. They drowned at sea when their hospital ship transporting wounded soldiers was torpedoed by German submarines. Both of Connie's brothers were killed at Delville Wood and she was last seen after a ship had been sunk by the torpedo calling out to the other nurses, hold on dearies, hold on, as she herself floated away to drown somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. All servicemen and women are buried where they fell or in cemeteries as close as possible. There are no segregated cemeteries. Both black South Africans and white South Africans are buried in the same cemetery as Joe Patterson in the town of Rouen. And we must not forget those soldiers of the Labour contingent who provided all the essential services for these great battles. Seven months later, in January 1917, the troopship SS Mendy was sucked in the English Channel. 607 black South African soldiers and nine white officers of the South African native Labour contingent drowned when the Mendy sank, as well as 31 crew members of the troopship. Some are buried in France, but most were lost at sea. One of the black South African soldiers who is buried in France is shortly to be moved to the memorial Delville Wood. Although this was not a battle in which black South Africans actually fought, it is fitting that a black South African should be at the memorial next to the actual wood, which is the most important site of remembrance for South Africa in the First World War of 1914 to 1918. As the Mendy sank, there is the story that a soldier from the Eastern Cape, Isaac Wachope Dioba, cried out to those still hanging onto the ship and struggling or swimming in the water and trying to get onto crowded life rafts. He shouted, Be quiet and calm, my countrymen, for what is taking place is exactly what you came to do. You are going to die, but that is exactly what you came to do. Brothers, we are now drilling the drill of death. I, Akosa, say to you, you are all my brothers, Zulus, Swazis, Pondos, Basutus, we die like brothers. We are the sons of Africa. Raise your cries, brothers, for our voices are left with our bodies. And it could, of course, be said that Yorba spoke for all those South Africans, men and women, black and white, who died in the First World War at Delville Wood and elsewhere. Quote, What is taking place is exactly what you came to do. You are going to die, but that is exactly what you came to do. We are the sons and daughters of Africa. Raise your cries because your voices are left with our bodies. Unquote. But what a high price South Africa and all other nations paid in this First World War, which brought no peace to the world. Mm -hmm.